What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your Oscars predictions today, as well as a lot of other content. Finally, Dave. I mean, it's been, what, 14 months since the last Oscars at this point? Yeah, exactly. Pretty crazy. I'm here with my co-host, Dave Martinson, who you just heard. Dave, how you doing this week? Doing well, man. Doing well. A lot, the movie year is finally over. Uh, for the people like us that pay attention, I have a feeling not many people are invested in this particular <laughs> award season. That That's abundantly clear. Yeah, people aren't really invested in much right now. Uh, COVID year, I mean... Yeah. Hard to get excited about a lot of things at the moment, I feel like. Um, get vaccinated, though, if you can. Hopefully next year's a more exciting movie year. Um, Dave, just wanted to check in with you quick. Saw a lot of buzz this weekend around Formula One racing. <laughs> People giving a lot of love to uh, the Formula One driving show on Netflix, which I know you're a big fan of. Yeah. Enjoying it? That's right. Yes, the second race of the season in Imola, Italy was this past weekend. Uh, yeah, I think F1 Drive to Survive on Netflix is exceptional and probably the best docu-series around a sports league out there. Each season of the show is about that the past season of F1 in real life. And the way they spin the narratives and choose the way they focus as they go out, you get a good feel of that the season of the sport, as well as everything else going on behind the scenes. It's really well done. And just really captivating. And also finding out F1, very easy sport to follow. They only race like, you know, two, three times a month. And, you know, that, that, that that's one singular race. It's not like baseball where they play five times a week. It's very easy sport to get into and keep up with, I must say. Well, for us East Coasters, what time are you waking up to watch this? Yeah, so it depends where they have it, obviously, because they race uh, all over the world. In this case, Italy was uh, what six hours ahead, so it, the race was nine a.m. Sunday okay. morning. Not bad. Wake not up. Not terrible. Have your coffee. I don't think you drink coffee, but have your uh, your breakfast and uh, watch some Formula One. Not too shabby. Um, Dave, we're gonna be talking quite a few things today. Obviously, I mentioned Oscar predictions. Got a couple of albums, some TV shows, and a movie. Let's start with uh, I love McConan who uh, was not expecting to be talking about today, gave his newest album, My Parade, a listen. Um, and, you know, I, I don't really know much about this person. You know, you were explaining to me before we started some of the places I may know him from. But in listening to him, all I kind of got was this, like, uh, Post Malone-esque type performer who's just kind of going for, like, the melodic like sound maybe get some like raps in there but nothing that really like struck me as super super intriguing uh, tell me why you want to talk about this album and what you thought about my parade yeah so we really haven't talked about mcconan since starting the podcast that's years into the game that's because he really hasn't done a whole lot recently he's more or less been m.i.a been independent under the radar dropping eps here and there and the only time he really popped up was on that posthumous little peep song uh, uh falling down which um he's on the original version they put it out again with exercise mm -hmm. but mcconan was a friend of little peeps and had worked with him and 
apparently they had you know about an album's worth of material recorded we've only heard that one song to this point but that, that's the last time i feel like he really popped up but i mean if people remember mcconan had a big hit several years ago now with you know tuesday club going up on tuesday which uh infamously remixed by drake leading to mcconan signing to ovo and mcconan being one of those probably the, probably the most hope high profile example of someone that drake remade, hopped on their song and kind of chewed up and spit out an artist once drake was kind of done with that <laughs> yeah. and mcconan fell out with ovo and has largely been underground since then but he is pretty well regarded across hip hop for like people that like know his music. And I think that's just because it's not that like he has like a dynamite album. And I would say even with my parade, it's not like I love the record, but he's just someone who has these moments because he does all kinds of weird shit. And the thing is, he's been doing the weird shit before Playboy Cardi started doing it. And it's I feel like he's he's kind of like like a key is another guy like this who dabbles in this melodic stuff over trap beats and has been all over the place the past few years and is a big influence on people you see doing this in a more mainstream way on major labels. So I just really wanted to mention McConan for, for that, you know, because I feel like he doesn't get his just desserts as much as he should. There's a great fader profile from a few years ago by Paul Thompson about him where like he's talking to people uh, that know McConan from back in the day and stuff and, so yeah, he's a he, he he's an interesting figure, and I I would love him to uh, be more active, really. Yeah, and you know I I, I might have given I might have been too harsh my first uh like kind of breakdown or my first opinion of him because I do think there's some moments on this that are pretty interesting. Um, you know, in listening to it, I think there's a moment in the beginning that I thought felt like it had a lot of potential. Uh, if it's cool, I, I felt like was a like toned down, almost like blood orange esque type, like slow jam sound, which I was yeah, like, sure. oh, this is pretty interesting. That he's like trying something like this. Um, I thought like whoopsie and so saucy were just like yeah. they're very just like going for pop radio, like mm-hmm. I don't know, attention type hits. I so saucy, I'm spilling ragu. How can you not love that? <laughs> um, but yeah, th- those felt just like. What what's the formula? Let's put something catchy out there, see if it sticks. But and then uh, the the title track um, I thought was okay, but mm-hmm. not a lot else really stood out to me on this. Uh, did you like more bitches than the mayor, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> I did, I did. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, oh, well, that's the thing too. Is like he's always had funny quotables. Um, uh, what's it? A uh, whip it harder is a reference to one of his again like random drops on like a mixtape from like five years ago. Whip it. Uh, the Whip It remix with McConan, Migos, as well as Rich Kid, like that that song rules, and that's like probably the last vestige of like a classic Migos uh, performance from Quavo before they Migos really blew up, and like he he's always had like these these like, songs just kind of pop up out of nowhere and stuff. Um, and and I'm, like that's the thing like, on my parade. Do I like really anything on this as much as I like like? the canon of McConan, which you have to really be on up on McConan to know about. Probably not, but I'm just happy to see him putting something out. And yeah, into totally independent and dropping this on a Tuesday. Uh, you probably didn't see this on your release radar playlist. He's not getting programmed or anything, but uh, I think that 
people should just use this as a chance to like go back and listen to those hits. Like I don't sell Molly no more. Still fucking goes too much is great. <laughs> like McConan's got some bangers, and I want to hear more. So keep it going, man. Uh, we'll, we'll probably throw a track on to our nostalgia best of 2021. Whoopsie. Um, we'll also probably put something from Kenny Mason on there, dropping Angelic Hood Rap Supercut. Um, yeah, you know, I think it it's hard to really talk about anything with this album without just kind of acknowledging the duality of the album, that this is an album where Kenny is doing a lot of rap and also mixing in a lot of rock. And I think trying to, uh, you know, mesh those things together um, uh, to, in the rap world has been done to varying levels of success. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel like he pulled it off with this album, Dave? Uh, that's the thing going in Angelic Code Rat Supercut. I was like, oh, is that like a deluxe to Angelic Code Rat, his debut album from 2020? Oh, no, it's completely new. Yeah. And like, that, <laughs> that kind of like th- threw me off for a second. And yeah, Kenny's going even further into that genre blending lane than he had already started doing last year. I briefly mentioned him for our XXL 2021 video in the sense that I think he's an excellent choice for XXL, but I just don't think he's mainstream enough to ultimately wind up getting picked. But two albums in, he's got other music as well, but these two main albums over the past two years definitely shows I think this guy's like really talented. And like you said, this genre blending, it's not like, it's not, <laughs> it, it, it's not hyperbolic. Like you're hearing like real guitars from an Atlanta rapper. Like it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing is I did not really like I listened to uh, the other one, uh, the same name, uh, Angela, Angela Kudarek, um, as like a precursor, kind of skipped around a couple of tracks um, and knew we'd probably be hearing some of it. But to hear it just like kind of come out so genuinely and feel not forced and to sound really interesting and, and cool, you know, we're going to be talking about a uh, rock album that I don't think is nearly as interesting um in a second i i was like enjoying the the genre blending and i i think you, you got a lot lot to like all over this and some really awesome features on this as well that i think really elevate it um and great to get a cosign for someone like that um yeah. i mean what what tracks stood out to you or what about the album what moments were your favorites i mean right off the bat i thought first track 43 yeah. big yeah. highlight um and throughout Angela Kudrat's Supercut, you'll notice that Kenny's not afraid to do major vocal changes in the middle of his song. Like he will switch up his delivery. It's quite exciting. He uh, always seems to keep it fresh, and I thought that really shines early on on that song, 43. Uh, A-plus with Denzel Curry. I mean, my God, Denzel just fits perfectly on that track. He mm-hmm. does not phone in his features, but this song, <laughs> this sounds incredibly tailored. Uh, to the track and upon doing some research it seems like Denzel himself was very early to the Kenny Mason uh, come up and that's awesome um, I mean, hit, to get a Freddie Gibbs feature yeah. now on the run Freddie is on again Kenny Mason independent artist he's doing what 662,000 monthly listeners on Spotify to get a Freddie Gibbs feature Huge. I think that says a lot apparently they sent the song to his team kenny didn't even know if freddie knew who he was the next thing you know freddie rapped on it for him so that's also a great co-sign 
Um, but yeah, because he genre blends so much and changes lots, you know, not just the production, but changes his own performance throughout the course of the album. I think it definitely warrants multiple listens because there's a lot to listen for. Um, I think rapping wise, when he's doing more traditional rapping, he reminds me a lot of like Jid and Kendrick in, the, in terms of the way he sounds. But again, he's doing trying to do much different things. And I think they are. Yeah, no, I the ones you shouted out were definitely the, my, my top tracks. And that that Freddie song, Much Money, is interesting because I think that's doesn't sound like a lot of other tracks on the album. It actually sounds more like a Freddie song, like a leftover from Alfredo, if, not, if anything else. Mm-hmm. So jazzy, but like they both are just so smooth on that track. It really is a standout to me. Um, you know, and, and you mentioned uh, a plus, obviously Denzel Curry goes off on that. Um, you know, it looking a little bit further down though, the song Pup, which I know has been a uh, single off this, you know, gotten him a lot of acclaim, um, really sounds like 21 Savage at certain mm-hmm. points in that track. And you mentioned that ability to like switch up his flow, switch up his cadence, really, you know, basically use his vocals as an instrument. And that really stands out on a track like that to me. So I, I feel like there's a lot of potential here. And yeah. hopefully we're, we're just going to see Kenny continue to grow and grow as an artist. Um, what else from this album stood out to you? Yeah, I'd say Playball, uh, Apartments, and 40, uh, I mentioned 43. Playball, Apartments, as well as 43. Also good examples of hearing those guitars and hearing him rap and also, you know, sing and stuff. And again, the genre blend, those are good examples of that. Uh, and yeah, Kenny Mason, he's 26. It's not like he's like super young or anything, but it seems like he really came into his own at the end of 2019 when his biggest song today, Hit, came out. But these, I mean, these these first two albums, uh, really impressive for someone still young in their career. And that genre blend, obviously it fits right in with like what people are doing these days, but he does not feel in the slightest like he's chasing any trends or anything. It, 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 it's still completely nonconformist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Buy stock now um, so that you can have those uh, diamond hands, baby. Mm-hmm. Um, putting a probably a track or two onto the playlist to follow that in the show notes uh Greta Van Fleet Dave's favorite rock band the saviors of rock and roll are back with their second album um yeah you know I mean (laughs) (laughs) so going into this we we all kind of know what to expect from Greta Van Fleet at this point right Mm -hmm. um they're Led Zeppelin light um they're a Led Zeppelin cover band. If, if we want to be real harsh, um, they drop. Yeah, they're their... happy to be that. They don't care. True. That, they double down true. for album two. Yeah. So Anthem of the Peaceful Army came out in 2018 uh, to, you know, varying levels of praise or uh, disregard. And it, 1.6 know... for a pitchfork. <laughs> Incredibly harsh. It's it's hard, though. You know, and I found myself really empathizing with them in a sense because i don't know how they how they can win right like the guy just sounds like the lead singer blows up and he sounds like robert plant like it's just the fact what are you gonna do like so at that point it's either like okay we have to make our entire sound completely different which i guess you could do people are gonna be like oh it sounds like this guy is trying to sound like robert plant doing a different sound or you just lean into it which is what they chose to do and i think some of the songs actually sound really awesome like these guys can really rock it's just hard Mm -hmm. to like 
look at their music and then be like, oh, this is really interesting because it does just sound like Led Zeppelin B-sides. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I feel like my take is largely the same since Anthem of the Peaceful Army. And again, even before that, those two EPs, they got four Grammy noms off that second EP, including Best New Artist. They won Best Rock Album for that second EP. They got an initial acclaim there, but yeah. my opinion really hasn't changed because they, for the most part, also have, have decided not to change. And it's a sense that I think the music is good. It, it's well-made classic rock. They mm-hmm. go hard. They do a lot of like the Zeppelin uh, trademarks, though. And in addition to the obviously easy-to-compare vocals, the long solos and periods of just instrumentation, these big, hard rock anthemic songs are just very rep- reminiscent of 70s classic rock. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. And they haven't really deviated from that at all there aren't like ballads on this there aren't really like slow jams on this at all it's more or less balls to the wall hard rock classic rock and that that's fine but as you said it's not that interesting from what i understand the greta van vliet reddit is super into their songwriting and that's like a big thing but to me i don't really listen to the lyrics all too much because like you said it's just not interesting to me <laughs> when would you ever put on their music when you could just put on Led Zeppelin instead? That's yeah. still very much the case two and a half years later for me. It's like, yeah. if this is what I want to hear, and I want to hear this all the time because this is great, I'd rather listen to the real stuff, you mm-hmm. know? So, and I don't know if that's Greta Van Vliet's fault. They're finding success. They can keep doing this. And again, they're really the only ones doing it. So yeah, that's fine. But to me, it's like, it, it, it's just weird. It's a weird feeling. Yeah, it it is strange, especially because even when they start to like try things, you know, I I forgot which track it is because I really wasn't that into the album to begin with. But one of the tracks they kind of start off with like this piano it might even be the last one, "Weight of Dreams," yeah, and it's like very, that one. yeah, which is it's a very epic song. But that one starts off with this acoustic guitar. I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. Um, and it starts off with this acoustic guitar and has this huge buildup. And it's this awesome song. But it's an eight-minute song. It starts off with, a, with an acoustic guitar and ends with like a huge rock-like swell and crescendo. Yeah. It's like, oh, this sounds a lot like another very yeah, famous Led Zeppelin song. Might have heard this before. <laughs> yeah. And like, it's, it's, I was thinking, like, what if this, what if lead singer sounded like the guy from 21 Pilots? Like, would we just be like, wow, these guys are fucking amazing. Like, they're really reviving. Like, if he didn't sound like, like, Led Zeppelin, like, they just, ugh, the vocals didn't sound like it. Would we think it's awesome? Is it right. that the instrumentation is just so similar? It's just, ugh, I don't know. And what's hilarious is if you read a lot, they've done plenty of press leading up to this mm-hmm. second album, The Battle of Garden Skate, Battle at Garden Skate, and they seem to, like, kind of laugh off a lot of the criticism and just feel like it's not accurate. And I just find that really funny because like, oh, we're not trying to be like Led Zeppelin. It's like, well, bro, <laughs> I wish you were way more self-aware than you apparently are because right. it would be a little more endearing. Like they're actually super serious about it, you know? And again, yeah. it's totally fine. I, I don't care. It, do what you want to do, of course. But I think in just terms of like it being interested in music, when we talked about the first album, I think, you know, the talent of them as, as instruments and you know, the, the Kish clan here, like they are talented rockers. If they do evolve, maybe they could become really interesting. Two albums in, they've made no attempt to evolve. And again, 
we've mentioned this a few times this year already. Greg Kirsten cast another bag with this one. He apparently was the lead producer on this album. <laughs> what the fuck did he possibly influence them on? This sounds yeah. just like the first album. Nothing. Like, oh, what the fuck, dude? This guy is getting bag <laughs> after bag to do nothing. Con man. Con man uh, <laughs> Greg Kirsten. We're calling him out. Um, yeah, you know, I, if you like Led Zeppelin, I think it's worth listening to these guys and just taking them for what they are, which yeah, is, you absolutely. know, they're they're Led Zeppelin light. Uh, they're still really great rockers. But again, if you want the real stuff, uh, you yeah, know, just go on Spotify and type in Led Zeppelin. It's all there. It's great. You know, one thing I noticed just looking and, re- you know, doing some research. So we remember that first time was successful, debuted at number three, 87,000 first week, 80,000 of which were traditional album sales what you expect from rock music. Funny enough, this album, Anthem Peace and Army, did not go gold in the US, let alone platinum. I found that very strange considering I was like, you got 80,000 traditional album sales first week. Surely this is going to be a big success as far as rock music. I don't know. Apparently not. Um, I found that a little strange, especially because you look on their Spotify and one of the, uh, one of their songs off uh, the EPs was it a uh, highway tune that's over 100 million streams so it's like they also have a digital presence yeah I was surprised to see they actually have sold less than I expected yeah I mean I think it's the sort of thing where you listen to the album and certainly these like reddit fans I'm sure listen to it over and over but uh you can't help but finish and want to just go back to like some of the Led Zeppelin greatest hits you know oh, just... I, I watched some some Led Zeppelin li- li- live videos on YouTube this week oh, not gonna crap. lie it got me in the mood yeah <laughs> um yeah so check check out it check it out um probably not gonna put a song honestly because i don't think it, uh, maybe we'll put that last one just to pad some of those stats uh nine minutes added to the playlist <laughs> yeah i'd also say like apart from that last track the weight of dreams i also like broken bells long yeah. solos periods of interpretation you've broken heard bells. before but when it sounds when, yeah. when they make it like this it's still it's still good again it just depends what mood you're in yeah, the first track heat above Tears of Rain, like they're they're solid rock tracks. They're just not super original, it feels like. So um why don't we move on to some TV though, Dave? And let's start with a show that wrapped up this past weekend. Made for Love. We didn't talk about the premiere, but we're talking about the ending. And that's all that matters, right? Mm-hmm. Got here by the end. Uh starring Kristen Milotti, Billy Magnuson, mm-hmm. uh Ray Romano, who's just been doing a lot of like yes. acting now like he's really doing a lot of dramatic work really yeah. like remember the irishman for example yep. irishman uh and then he was also in the kumal movie um that's right big sick yes big sick so um this was a nice little watch i'd say um not not a perfect show i think we'll we'll get into it you know dark comedy so the the tone of that can be hit or miss and you know, this is really like Black Mirror meets Silicon Valley to me in a lot of ways, or like at yeah. least attempting to kind of mesh those two together. Um, but really, I think the thing to talk about is Kristen Milotti, who just seems to be a star on the rise at this point after Palm Springs this past year. But w- what did you think of Made for Love? Yeah, so this is actually the first Max Originals show we've discussed. There haven't been too many, but... They've actually gotten a pretty solid reception. Remember, these are shows on HBO Max, but not actually made by HBO. It's a different silo at Warner Media, but still, obviously, you're not watching them at the same place. To the average person, they probably don't know the difference. 
but a love life with Anna Kendrick was one of these. The flight attendant with Kaylee Cuoco was one of these as well. That sci-fi show raised by wolves. Now we have made for love. So the max originals coming in at this point, first one for us. And yeah, Kristen Milioti, like this is a vehicle for her and it's not her doing anything she hasn't been doing of late. You mentioned Palm Springs. There's a lot of similar themes to that here for her character. And you also mentioned Black Mirror. She starred in one of the most acclaimed Black Mirror episodes of late, USS Callister, again, with some similar themes in terms of being at the the whims and wills of a wealthy, influential tech bro with really powerful technology. You know, like, there's a lot of, I think, common through lines she's doing here, but I don't mind it because she's just a really winning presence. And to give her a vehicle like this is great because she's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I just found her incredibly charming um, and, you know, someone I want to spend time with. And Hazel is a, uh, I wouldn't say like a, you know, really complex character, but I also wouldn't say that she's like one note either. I think there's a couple of sides that she had to play, and um, you know, kind of seeing her go from this like uh, trapped person to this very liberated, independent, strong person by the end of the show, I thought was a nice arc. Um, you know, I think where maybe I felt a little bit um, tripped up at times, or or I think the part that was really a difficult part of this all for me was Ray Romano's character. So her dad, Herbert, uh, carrying around the doll the whole time. Synthetic Um, partner. Yes. (laughs) The synthetic partner uh, didn't totally hit for me. Um, I felt like I got where, where I get where it got to at the end and kind of like what they were trying to say about like Ray Romano, kind of just settling for what his life was at that point, not wanting to like go out, make himself vulnerable, um, go through more heartbreak as he's you know reaching the end of his life, just be comfortable really. Um, and, and also accepting people for where they're at. Right. So like, that's also, I think one of the points of the show is like accepting people for where they're at, but um, yeah, the, the doll Diane, I think her name was, yeah. I, I, I just became a little bit like, ah, I, I get it. Like I don't need this right. much of her. I kind of wish there were some, like, it was the source of better jokes. It didn't really yeah, end up leading to a, a whole lot. Anything that, that great. Yeah, right. I agree. Um, what did you think of Billy Mag- Magnuson as Byron Goggle? Yeah, um, obviously a very uh, on-the-nose name there. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, not a, a character we haven't seen before again in this kind of stuff. He's very, what, zuckerberg S essentially, what, the wealthy yeah. uh, tech entrepreneur who's like elon musk like mark zuckerberg not a real person at all and at least in our stereotypical view of them incapable of being a real person and doing maybe even average things like a normal person and that includes human interaction Mm -hmm. i like billy magnuson you know he's been in a lot of stuff lately he's definitely working but i've always thought he was pretty talented you know whether it's like supporting roles like in game night or a maniac um on netflix of course where he's reunited with patrick somerville as one of the producers on made for love but yeah i thought i thought he was also a good choice and and him and uh Miliati had had good chemistry like i believe both of their roles and like the relationship and the very up and down nature of it like it all made mm-hmm. sense to me yeah i really liked his uh rapport with bennett played by caleb foot i felt like they had a pretty funny back and Definitely. forth um you know i also 
kind of liked how they had this like what was it called it was uh it wasn't the sphere the oculus right um where like they could just like make any anywhere that you want to be all the time uh, yeah i forgot the name the cube something yeah something like that some right. um and i, I kind of liked how like they just constantly were like tricking people into like where they were like <laughs> and then putting them through all like the simulations i thought a lot of that stuff was pretty good sending them off to pasture, pasture and basically yeah. banishing them that, that that was well done i like that yeah i agree um yeah you know overall i think this is a nice watch um i think you'll enjoy it uh and it's pretty quick too like i, I found these yeah. episodes digestible so um definitely worth checking out any any other thoughts for you yeah, yeah i would say thankfully like you said it doesn't get too long in the tooth it's less than four hours into in, in total um hbo max has been doing for these max originals where they drop i think was it three at the start and then a little week to week and then drop like the last one or two at the end so a little hybrid release there but i i wouldn't say that made for love like reinvents the wheel too much like there's nothing super uh I don't know, like thought provoking for this kind of like tech satire stuff. You know, I feel like we're all, I feel like the average audience member at this point kind of has a more elevated view of this kind of stuff. Like we've seen a lot of Black Mirror at this point. Like mm-hmm. uh, it, it's iterative in a certain sense, but because the acting is well done, it's not too long. Uh, you know, I, I think it's, it, it's well, well worth the time. Uh, how'd you feel about the end? You know, that's the first time you get some like truly like philosophical stuff there. And Hazel almost becomes uh, Billy Madison at the end there, right? Making yeah. her a choice for her dad, that him even knowing it, it's basically like the chip that had been in her head all season, right? Uh, yeah, I wasn't expecting something like that because the conflicts felt very accessible and easy to understand and follow to that point in the season, and mm-hmm. then you get this kind of like I wouldn't call it a twist, but like. Uh, it was a little bit of a sharp turn, I felt like, for Hazel, given what we had seen to that point. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I thought I thought the twist was good. It definitely made me think about like the ethics of it, as well as just you know why she would make that choice at, the, at this point in her life. Um, and I really think the last episode being very um, leftovers esque in terms of just putting the two main characters face to face and making them have a conversation um and really getting somewhere i think you know where i got to was hazel must have felt like byron um which i think his name is actually like greg or something like that um could could be a better partner to her in some ways and that she also is like willing to like make the sacrifice for someone she loves um and i also get the sense that she felt like her dad maybe was more willing to try things than or to try again that now that she was in her, in his life but yeah i think it's a very like gray area in terms of the decision and um definitely left me feeling you know at, at least thoughtful and unsure so what did you think about it though yeah no i, I agree i agree yeah. i just kind of threw me off a little bit cuz i hadn't expected to see the turn like that honestly but and I, I, I guess it pays pays off everything we've been working to. I wish that they had kind of worked that in a little bit more. Some of these these things, um, it kind of felt like you know the idea of like the chip and uh, the made for love technology was kind of like black and white. Like this is bad, or this is good. But you know, if people as partners want to have something like that, it doesn't have to be bad and good. And you know, I think there's more to explore with that. But eh, it wasn't that type of show, which is I'm fine with. Um, 
check it out on, on HBO and then also uh, click over to watch the premiere of Mayor of Easttown. And Dave, Kate Winslet's back and she's back because she's playing Mayor Sheehan. Great last name. Oh, is that right? Yeah, dog. They all over this episode. Mayor Sheehan, Mayor Sheehan, everywhere. The Sheehan clan is in this. I was like, oh my, my brethren, my people. Is this a clan you want to uh, take ownership of? <laughs> Maybe not. Well, although, well, I don't know where Mayor's gonna end up, but she seems to have been a pretty good athlete. Seems like she's a pretty good detective. Yeah. Talented person in some ways. Also seems pretty troubled. But uh, yeah, Mayor of Easttown, um, created by Brad Inglesby. Inglesby. That premiered on HBO last night. Dave, thoughts on the premiere? What What did you like? What didn't you like? A lot of familiar beats, right? This is another HBO dramatic miniseries with a Hollywood star. Clearly a vehicle to accrue acclaim and future awards. Also, on the more grimmer, gloomier, darker side of things, not like not unlike a very recent example of this HBO phenomenon. I know this much is true, starring Ralph Gruffalo. But through one episode, we've only seen one. I know critics have seen everything, but I believe the finale. Uh, through one episode, Mary of Easttown seems a little more palatable than I know this much is true. Like, I know this much is true really, like, beat you over the fucking head with how much of a tough hang it was. This, not yeah. so much, right? Like, uh, that's good. We're still in a tough town, right? East Town, you know, I think we're, like, in the greater suburbs out of the Philadelphia area, low income neighborhood, there's a lot of people experiencing tough times. And that's made very clear through one episode. But it's Kate Winslet on TV. Kate Winslet's one of the best actresses there is. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm down. Yeah. You know, this felt a lot like True Detective to me. Um, it, I mean, obviously the whole crime show detective vibes dead girl at the beginning true detective twin with peaks. like a weird beats, you know, we know person lurking around who looks like a devil sort of thing um yeah you know it's very much in that ilk and i just was like man if if they were just like true detective season four with kate winslet i would have been in like sure like give it to me so that, that's kind of how i'm like seeing this but i think the thing that i was most impressed with in this episode is just like the world building of it but and you know, you, you leave this episode understanding exactly who Mare is, the, like the thing she's going through, where she's at in her life, understanding all of the intricate relationships going on um, around her. Um, I'm forgetting the, the girl who's killed at the end, but you kind of see the relationship between her and her dad, her and her boyfriend, and then right. the, other, uh, the other girlfriend um, who's a piece of yeah. shit. And you know, you're watching this and you, you kind of leave just being like, ah, I feel like I know this place. I know these people and I'm ready to see how everything kind of breaks down um, as they try to find this killer on the loose or this, you know, person who murdered this young girl. Um, right. How did you feel about like the world building of it all? This like little Pennsylvania town. Right. Well, I think that that's how the show is able to separate itself from some easy comparisons, because unlike Twin Peaks, where Laura Palmer is just a dead girl to further the story we actually see as you said quite in depth about the difficult life this young woman is experiencing before she dies by the end of the first episode right so that's definitely a different tad in terms of coloring things in um i'm wondering how 
like is the hook of mayor of east town just gonna be like let's watch this crime get solved and we obviously know that mayor and her extended family there's gonna be hiccups and things going on there like it's kind of like personalness of this lead detective uh from what i understand evan peters will be coming in as an outside like county detective or county police officer to pair with her to get involved in the case harkens back to other similarities like broad church and also true detective right so I'm, I'm like the true detective had like an occult element to it right sharp objects had like that like gothic style to it like, i don't know if we're gonna get anything too much like that i feel like it's just gonna be watching kate winslet do the philly accent and <laughs> you know solve the crime with evan peters like it, it might not be too like layered mm-hmm but it feels like I mean, layers is the setting, I guess, more so than like the mystery box. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I don't think it's going to be like supernatural or anything like that, which I'm I'm cool with. Like, um, you know, from what I understand, I think this is only like a six or seven episode run. Yeah, so seven. Yeah. So you basically got two months, you know, a month and a half or whatever it is to really be with these characters and i feel like that's more than enough and there's a lot here to unpack you know um there's a lot of like family dynamics you have gene smart i can't imagine she's just gonna be playing uh you know grandma helen sheehan on the sidelines like she's gonna be involved you have um andrew rice who people would know from the nice guys as uh ryan gosling's daughter in that which she was great playing siobhan her daughter so you know that there's gonna be a lot Mm -hmm. of different things like you mentioned, Everton Peters, man. I mean, like, what what a look for him acting beside Kate Winslet moving forward. Totally, totally. And we know he can get weird with it from, like, American Horror Story stuff. Yeah. So I'm curious to see what kind of character he's really playing. Uh, also, Guy Pierce, him and Kate yeah. Winslet actually reuniting from the last time Kate Winslet was on TV almost 10 years ago with uh, was it Mildred Pierce, which was another HBO miniseries. So you got actors you like. It's yep. made by HBO, so you, there's an assumption of quality. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an effective first episode. So it's, I think it's really just going to be about is it engaging enough without being too grim? Because it, it's going to be dark, right? Like Mare's mm-hmm. got shit going on. It, we're not in, in a well-to-do town. Like there's a lot of negativity all throughout the story and you can easily <laughs> see it staying this way. So uh, will there be twists and turns to the way the, 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 this mystery goes? Because like you watch that first episode, it's like, huh, well, this girl died. She probably wasn't killed by the fucking other kids that she was fighting with. That's too obvious. So mm-hmm. what is it, right? Like, you know the beats. So it's all about execution. Yeah, and uh, I'm I'm along for the ride. You know, we talked about another HBO show last week in the Nevers that we might not get back to, but this definitely sucked me in. So I'm looking forward to next week's episode for sure. Uh, follow along with us. Drop us your thoughts below in a comment. Um Dave, let's move on to some. Uh, let's move on to a movie before we talk about the movies of the year. Nobody, Better Call Saul. <laughs> uh, I guess uh, is also a CIA agent. Um, obviously, I'm referring to Bob Odenkirk, who's the lead in this. Um, you know, directed by Ilya Nashler, yes. who's a uh, Russian hardcore Henry. Yes, uh, a Russian director. He also did a lot of like music videos. I think he also was a musician for. Yes, uh, that's correct. I forgot what the name of the band was. Pretty good name. Hold on, let me see. He did the music for Hardcore Henry a lot. 
uh, Biting yeah. Elbows is the name of it. It was a pretty, pretty good band name. Um, but all, it was written by Derek Colstead, who you would know from the John Wick series. So, you know, you kind of, I think, know what you're going to get with this movie going in. Bob Odenkirk, probably a downtrodden guy who has like a secret past and there's going to be a lot of action around that. That's pretty much, I think what you get with this, mm-hmm. but the action scenes are really fun. Um, even though, you know, it's a little out there at times, you turn your brain off and enjoy the, enjoy the ride is kind of my take with this. How'd you feel about it though? Yeah. So you said it's written by Derek Kolstad, who also wrote all three John Wick movies. This nobody's also produced by David Leach. So the John Wick DNA is front and center. And I couldn't help but laugh. I was like, wow, this is like, it's not just like action vehicle for grizzled middle-aged white man. Like it's not, it's not quite the Liam Neeson stuff we've been getting the last 10 years. It's really John Wick pastiche. This is Mm -hmm. trying to be John Wick. And there's so many similarities to John Wick. Like he has a fucking secret stash of gold bars. I was like, oh my God, come on, man. (laughs) Like, can we not be so obvious with the callbacks? And the kitten instead of the dog. Yeah. I mean, but it also is giving you exactly what it it's telling you it's going to be. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of fun. I don't mind seeing Bob Odenkirk doing something a little different. I thought he did a good job. And the action scenes are still well choreographed. I thought the bus fight was the clear highlight just because that's really intense and also mm-hmm. pretty protracted. Uh, it does not have a compelling villain in the way other John Wick uh, stories go. I think that's clearly the flaw of the film it just kind of fizzles out because the villain never makes an impression at all but you know for this kind of stuff like really intense hardcore action beat em up stuff you know it's not raid level but it's it, it's good so yeah if that's what you want this is good enough yeah and you know it's it really is as, as we're talking it through and i mentioned saul but it's really like if breaking bad you know turned into john wick really like you mentioned and that's kind of what you get is like Bob Odenkirk, uh, you know, father of two married, but seems like he's in a pretty listless marriage at this point, um, gets held up or his house gets robbed. He uh, could have done something to the robbers and kind of lets them go and kind of just sticks in his craw that he just let them go. And then he goes on this, you know, finds them, <laughs> runs into the these Russian mob people that he, uh mercs on this bus and a pretty awesome fight scene like you mentioned um and then it just becomes like super outlandish like bob odenkirk is this ex ci or ex uh, military auditor and for all these mm-hmm. three letter or uh, agencies with the government making sure that all their all the people who are supposed to be dead are dead and all that stuff yeah. i was like <laughs> jesus christ this is some interesting writing right here um but maybe there's people like that i don't know but yeah you know it was it was fine um i i really liked seeing christopher lloyd just being like a badass grandfather i felt like yeah. that was pretty fun that was unexpected shout yeah. out christopher lloyd happy to see him and rizza just like showing up and murking people at the end just like a pretty fun gunfight i don't know like there were some fun things i i don't really think there's a lot to like dig my teeth into here just because it like, like you said it the beats are very familiar. It's just like old white guy, really a badass, and kicks ass. The end in my book. Yeah. Um, anything else beyond that for you? No, I mean this is it's cool to see Ilya get another shot directing. Hardcore Henry came out in 2015, and 
that movie is very outlandish and over the top stories, completely nonsense, but it's notable for its shooting gimmick in the sense that it's shot in completely first person for the protagonist's point of view, like, not like a video game. And that is fun and cool. Even at the movie, I think you kind of see the movie in the first 15 minutes and you get the idea, but it's cool to see him get another shot um, at something. And you definitely can tell he has those action sensibilities. So I would not be surprised to see him, eventually attached to something even more high profile um also funny i was in a pavel uh Polgoblesky. sorry i can't read my handwriting uh the cinematography and this is the same guy who did ari aster's movies hereditary and midsommar funny enough hmm. interesting i wouldn't have put that together um no, no way huh well it looks like he's uh got some range there for sure um yeah, I think it's worth checking out. Um, you know, it's, it's VOD right now or in theaters. So if you're going to the theater, you have like your, yeah. your Regal Plus or your AMC stubs, check it out. But, it, you know, if not, you can probably wait. It's made uh, about 30 million worldwide. So it's actually doing pretty well for, you know, given given everything going on. So, yeah. And also, it's an action movie. There's only so many action movies. And when you get one that's mm-hmm. pretty good, you know, there's flashes support it. Movies are coming back. Let's talk about the best movies from a year that we can't get back, Dave. And that's the uh, 2020, or I guess 2021 Oscars, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the movies from 2020 and into 2021. Uh, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the Oscars, you know, as not predicting the nominations, reaction to the nominations. Now we're predicting the winners. And I, I think as you look through the categories, you feel pretty certain about a few of these. You know, like you kind of feel like, some of these categories are wrapped up and then there's some that maybe are a little more up for grabs. So why don't we start with some of the lesser profile categories down below. Let's start with the uh, best in- international film in talking about this. So this Sunday, is there a film that you think is definitely going to win best international film, Dave? Best international film seems clearly going yeah. to another round from Mads. Denmark. Of course, a movie we liked came out in December yeah. on VOD. Sorry, Mads Mikkelsen, uh, also known as Druk in Denmark. And the reason we're so certain is because Thomas Vinterberg surprisingly was nominated for Best Director. <laughs> yeah. The only one in this category to earn such a distinction. Therefore, uh, Transitive Property, another round, is your Best International uh, Feature Film winner. And I, I think a just one. Um, mm-hmm. Probably the most important thing to take note of here is Minaria's not nominated here because Minari is an American film that just so happens to be in a foreign language, Korean. Other award shows nominate based on the language, not the uh, nationality of the film. So Minari has won, I guess, different kinds of categories like this earlier in the year, but of course, that's not the case here. And, I mean, it's nom- in terms of what it's nominated against, real quick, um, was it K. Vadas Ida? That's a movie from Bosnia. It's supposed to be really great. That's on Hulu now if people want to check that out. Um, and also Better Days, the Hong Kong nom- movie that was nominated. It's probably the most popular movie um, that was nominated here. Also one of the oldest ones. But uh, yeah, it's it's going to be another round. You can bet on that. Yeah, uh, seems pretty certain. Uh, the odds are 31 to 10, which is uh, 3 to 1 pretty much. So definitely probably going to pull that one out. Best documentary feature. Um, my Octopus the Teacher, Locke, would you say? You know. Six months ago, we knew a lot a lot of high-profile documentaries from 2020. My Hawks teacher was not on that radar. <laughs> no. And yet, it has won the Producers Guild Award, the ACE, 
and the BAFTA for this. The only other documentary wins have gone to movies that are not nominated at the Oscars. So, Atticus Teacher beating out uh, what everyone thought was the favorite and uh, time from Amazon. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, uh, yeah, it seems like it's a lock. You can watch it on Netflix. Yeah. You know, I've seen two of the five. I saw Crip Camp and I watched time recently. I, I think Crip Camp is, should be the number two. I don't know my octopus teacher. So if I had to like pick a upset here, I would have wanted Crip Camp, but yeah, my octopus teacher seems like pretty much a lock um, animated feature. We don't need to spend time on this. It's soul. Take it to the bank. That's right. Soul has won Globe, PGA, Ace, BAFTA, and Annie, the animation lead award. So they, Soul has won everything, and no one else has won anything else. Wolf Walker's won a lot of other Annie awards. We always thought that was the number two, but uh, it's been Soul from the jump. Once again, lock it in. Yeah, Pixar crushing it. Looking at these technical categories, are there any that stand out to you as you know categories you're particularly interested in or paying attention to here? Yeah, uh... You know, this always varies year to year, right? Um, this is the first year sound mixing and sound editing is now under one roof. It's just best sound. And I actually enjoy the fact that we know who's winning this this year. It's going to be Sound of Metal, a movie that the sound design is so integral to the storytelling and also the nature of the story. Oh, yeah. um, so it's cool to see that because, you, you know, usually best sound goes to what I think when 1917 won last year. Like, it, you know, it's usually just kind of more like the technical stuff to this but it's not so much really big part of the story yeah in the no I, sound of metal so that's cool to see yeah i agree and actually i think the probably the the number two in this category soul which is also another movie where the sound mm-hmm. feels so important to the the storytelling and the experience right. but yeah sound of metal is a lock for that one but you know we're talking about soul I mean, that feels pretty much like a lock for best score as well, right? That's right. I think it's basically been sweeping as well. Resonor and Atticus Ross. Yeah, another easy one. Will my favorite movie of last year, Tenet, bring home a Oscar for best visual effects, you think? Seems like it. Seems like the clear choice, yes. right? It better. Respect <laughs> Tenet, you fools. Yeah, so good. Um, all right, moving up. Uh, production design. Mank is the favorite. I think that's should be a lock man yeah, another one where it's like just intricate production design recreating uh what were we in the 20s 30s yeah uh, hollywood california like Insane. Yeah. you can't you can't poke a hole in the main production design so it's a just win no question yeah you know i think about that scene where they're at like the dinner party and how much that really just parallels the scenes in kane with like the big fireplace and it's totally. so well done um Makeup and hairstyling, I mean, I feel like Ma Rainey probably running away with that one. Yeah, yeah, it seems like it. I mean, Ma Rainey's character, Viola Davis, like that was really distinct makeup and hairstyling on the year. And the only other thing I really think of was in Promising Young Woman, same way Carrie Mulligan's character is a lot of notable makeup and hairstyling. Yeah, but yeah, it seems like it's Ma Rainey. Uh, For that and costume design probably yeah, as well. it seems like it, yep um you know the first like technical category that seems like there might be a real race is best film editing sound of metal and trial of the chicago seven are kind of neck and neck there which one are you leaning yeah that one i don't have a good feel on that one i'm actually kind of surprised to see sound of metal of all films being kind of seen as the favorite if there is one there Mm -hmm. um especially because the um ace win went to chicago seven so I actually probably would lean Chicago seven here, but tough to get tough to get a feel on this one. I think. 
So as we're moving up the categories, I feel like this is a pretty important one right here. Um, because usually the best picture nominees have, you know, at least a technical category that they win or recognize yeah. for. Absolutely. Cinematography seems like it's probably going to be Nomadland, which would be really important to, you know, that being the best picture case, which I think a lot of people are leaning towards that being best picture. Do you think they're a lock for that one? I wouldn't say it's a lock, but I would lean that way. Again, like it's competing against something probably like Mank, another mm. film with stark, noticeable cinematography, but Mank's not a top tier best picture contender. So, yeah, that's that's a pickup you think Nomadland really needs to follow through on best picture. You remember, like every year we talking about like the path for a film to win, like with Parasite, same thing. Like you talked about, you kind of need to win something early on to get have any confidence about taking home the last trophy at the end of the night. So yeah, I think No Man's not to bury No Man's considered the overwhelming favorite at this point, just given how the award season mm-hmm. has panned out. But I still think you want to see this because No Man's probably a film that's gonna win one if any acting wins and is unlikely to win for or not not certain to win for screenplay as well so it's like it would kind of be uncharacteristic for the nomadland win to happen without some of this down ballot stuff but we're not, I'm not really certain about any of them and i think it starts with cinematography yeah you know i think about the cinematography from nomadland and like movie like news of the world which has these like really sweeping shots of Vistas. landscape yeah and news of the world i think what where it's so different is that's all about like that you know adventurous west uh, blazing the trail type thing but nomadland is very like claustrophobic at times you know staying in these very small spaces and their vans and then it's so sweeping and i think it really gives you that back and forth experience which is why i think it probably will win this category but like you said i don't think it's necessarily uh, a lock it in pick we're moving on to the screenplays though adapted and original what do you got for each category where are you leaning yeah, so this one's really fun. Adapted screenplay. As I said, this yeah. is where Nomadland really wants to get a win here. But it's really hard to predict this one because adapted screenplay has been won by Borat's subsequent movie film from the Writers Guild, Nomadland from the Critics' Choice Award, not really representative of the Academy, and then by The Father at the BAFTA, the father of British film, so inherent bias. Mm-hmm. And don't forget that the globe golden globes only do a best screenplay win they don't delineate and that when win went to trial of the chicago seven which is going to be up in the original screenplay yeah so adapt it's hard to pin down and you know i think part of remember like part of the thing with the writers guild is not everyone gets nominated due to like the rules of the writers guild no my land and minari were not nominated for the writers guild award so we don't actually know what all the screenwriters think because they had limited thoughts but options right mm-hmm. so i would lean no metal land just because it's the strongest film here but there's definitely upset potential here yeah man if borat came out of this category <laughs> just chaos will ensue i feel like and i mean i mean you think about it too like the screenplay of nomadland it's not like the talkiest film, you know, no. this is a movie about feeling and, and, and the vibes, as we said, right. And even though it's not, they're not happy vibes more often than not, it's still a lighter screenplay. 
Like yeah. the reason things we'll be celebrating here again, the cinematography, the direction, Francis McDormand. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much the screenplay. So we let's jump back to original screenplay. You already mentioned Trial of the Chicago Seven, probably the second favorite in this category to Promising Young Woman. Yeah. I would love to see Minari get this though. Yeah, Promising Young Woman, Writers Guild win, Critics win, BAFTA win, Chicago Seven Globe win. Minari has not won anything. Wasn't WGA mm-hmm. eligible, but yeah, that'd be a, that'd be an awesome win, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, I'd be so excited. I, I, I'm going to lean Promising Young Woman here. It just kind of feels like that's a movie that is not going to get much of anything else, and that's a good nod to it. And also, that's a movie where I think has a really smart screenplay, and. Mm-hmm the screenplay of the movie is a big reason why it succeeds alongside Carrie Mulligan's performance. So I think that's a good win, but Minari also, you know, it's funny to think that we're largely picking against Aaron Sorkin, who usually is a darling lock in for his writing, of course. So, yeah, I mean, lean promising young woman here, but tough to pin down and Minari would be, would would be quite the the upset because again, it actually hasn't won any of the precursor awards. Yeah, you know, I, I I don't see it winning, but if it does, it, it might mean that we actually have a race for Best Picture, which would be really interesting. Um, let's move on to Best Supporting Actor, though, because this one's pretty quick. You know, uh, Daniel Kaluuya has won at the Globes, uh, SAG, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, yes. um, pretty much everything. So everything he's going to win. For. Um, uh, let's move on to Supporting Actress, where it's a little bit more all over the map, right? Um Yoo Jung Yoon from Minari is probably the favorite SAG BAFTA. Um, but you know, Maria Bakalova mm-hmm. right there would be a great win. Critics Choice Award win. Could Globe be? went to Jody Foster, so throw yeah. that one out. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, could we maybe see something here? Don't forget Olivia Coleman, uh, who is a Academy darling. True. Um it's probably gonna be Yoo Jung Yoon, which is yeah, would be pretty awesome. It would be awesome, you know, someone who's had a decades-long career making films now getting belated recognition uh, in the West for a role like this. A great role. She's an integral part to the movie. And it kind of feels like that's the way the winds have been going the past few weeks, so that's what I would pick. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably the safe pick for that category. All right, moving on to Best Actor. I mean... Chadwick. It's Chadwick and uh, Ma Rainey for this one. He's got what the Globes, Critics Choice, Saf- SAG. Uh, yeah, Anthony Hopkins won BAFTA. Yes, the BAFTAs have a history with picking Brits and not picking Black people, so mm-hmm. that explains that one. But Hopkins is great in The Father, well liked. I wouldn't be totally shocked if he did an upset. It just would still kind of feel like it's coming out of nowhere. Would you be shocked by Riz? Yes, I'd be yeah. shocked by Riz Ahmed, no question. <sighs> the same thing with Stephen Young. This category has so many great people in it. I mean, uh, Chadwick, I would love the win. He's probably going to. But if Ahmed or Young win this, Young right. uh, win this. Um, I mean, you, you feel I, like it, it. it's just posthumous recognition for Chadwick's career, but it's also a tremendous performance. Yeah. On the other hand, Ma Rainey notably was not nominated for best picture despite everyone kind of throwing it in there all year long the father is nominated for best picture so maybe that matters i don't think it will so yeah it, i think it's going to be chadwick and everyone's going to be very 
happy and excited to, to celebrate him and, and his unfortunate, fortunately, last chance for it. Well, as we move on to probably the category that's most up in the air right now, will Ma Rainey bring home both Best Actor and Best Actress? Because Viola Davis is the number two in this category now in terms of odds. Carrie Mulligan being number one for Promising Young Woman. But Andre Day had that Globes win, got some momentum there. We had Frances McDormand, who I think she's won something, right? She won the BAFTA. Okay. Mulligan won the Critics. Viola Davis won SAG and was not nominated at BAFTAs. So no one has won more than once. Vanessa Kirby, also happy to be here. So <laughs> really hard to pin down. Yep. I was leaning Carrie Mulligan for a while. And then it felt like it actually kind of feels like it's going Viola Davis. I started to see people throw out Andre Day. <sighs> kind of really surprised me just because it's a good performance, but the people versus Billie Holiday is a pretty middling movie. So I, I would hate to see it, see it win, honestly. Um, but yeah, Viola, I think it's Viola Davis versus Carrie uh, Mulligan. Mulligan. And I, I don't know which way to lean. This is, you know, in past few years, we've been able to lock in all four acting races well in advance, especially mm-hmm. last year. That is not the case this year. You, no one can be confident about Best Actress. Yeah. Um, also, Frances uh, McDormand, who's won yeah. before. Not that Viola Davis is also a darling, but Frances McDormand has a chance to win three Best Actresses, which would put her in esteemed company with uh, Hepburn and uh, Meryl Streep, I believe. And also, if Nomadland just cleans up and has a huge night, it'll be very easy to see McDormand also picking it up here. So you can't write oh. her off. Absolutely. Um all right, gun to head, uh, or you know, squirt gun to head. What what are you choosing? Uh, who are you choosing for this? I'm gonna go pick, Mulligan. I'm gonna pick Davis. Sag Sag wins a big precursor there. The acting body is the biggest block of the Oscars, though not as big as it used to be, but still the biggest block. So that's my my calculus there. Would would be awesome. Um, she was great in that movie. Really transformed herself. Best director. Uh, I mean, Chloe Zhao has won everything. (laughs) Also won all four. She has not lost. Best director. So this one's uh, a coronation. Lock it in. Uh, Yeah. And uh, check out The Eternals, which should be coming out by the end of this year. November. Uh, (laughs) All right. And we're on to the last category. Best picture. Um, Yeah. No Man Land. Overwhelming favorite here. Uh, Won pretty much everything. Um, (laughs) Minari. Could it? Do the upset? I mean, Trial of the Chicago's haven't got the SAG ensemble, I guess, but like, do we yeah. really think that's going to win Best Picture? No. Right. So I think that's it's funny to look at the precursors here because Nomadland is the overwhelming favorite, but Nomadland had notable like misses here. It was not eligible for the Writers Guild, fine, but it was not nominated to SAG, let alone winning. It wasn't even nominated, which makes sense given the movie. It's truly a one actor film two actor film and then a bunch of non-professional actors so i kind of understand but chicago seven also won for editing at ace so you have chicago seven winning sag and ace and you have nomadland winning critics pga uh bafta globe and dga so yeah it's not as like slam dunk as other years has been but it still feels like it's pretty certain to be nomadland and like we said before, Minari, like Minari hasn't actually won anything to this point, so it would kind of feel out of nowhere if it was to win. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be a preferential ballot type result more than anything yeah. else. If you had to pick one 
one win that you want to see. Not one that you think mm-hmm. is going to happen, but one like an upset or something that you really want to happen. Mm-hmm. What are you picking here? Oh, that's a good question. I thought that's too much. Um, man, because it's like... I think, you know, I I would probably like to see something like Amanda Seafried for Mank would be like oh, a huge yeah. upset. I would that, love that. that. That's actually it. Yes, that's it. That was a race I thought she was going to lead and she never won the blessed thing for the award. Uh, yeah. Still craft the nominations. Yeah, that, that would be awesome. Uh, best picture, I guess, would probably be the choice here. The hard right? part yeah. for me also... I'd go Judas for best picture, but no, oh, no chance. Man, that would be a moment. Oh shit, that'd be great. Um, yeah, I was I was gonna say I, I wish uh I could root for Riz or Steven Yoon to take it home, but Chadwick losing at this point yeah. would be sad too. So And like Tough I'd love here. to see Lakeith win, but I want Dana Kalia win more, so can't go against that. We're just gonna have to wait for Steven Yun to win for his uh part in the new Jordan Peele movie, so that's, yeah, that, that's okay one more year <laughs> or two more years all right dave that wraps it up for uh our oscars predictions unless you have anything else you want to add no i think that's it you know i mean ratings they're going to be real low yep all the other award show ratings have been low also most live sports event big 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 events and championship games and stuff have also been real low um in the oscars declining viewership is not just covid but i think the sharp drop is largely covid so we'll see how much award shows recover in the upcoming years so that's a narrative that you're going to see parroted but you 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 know the reasons watch them or just follow along on twitter however you get your news usually um also there's plenty of people that probably didn't watch these movies so yep true then you're not going to watch it i guess (laughs) uh other than oscar wrap up what do we what else we got for next week uh yeah so next week just close my notes for some reason <laughs> uh next week we have the end of the falcon and the winter yep. soldier disney plus yep. marvel and porter robinson's first album in years and years like several uh years and also on hbo max video game movie savior mortal Kombat, baby Finition. Uh, yeah, so uh, we'll be talking about it all. Hit that subscribe if you're watching youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod to follow us any other way you want to. And uh, follow our playlist, Nostalgia Best of 2021. Check the show notes. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.